Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today on a warm and sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined on the programme by Usama Amar. Usama is the co-founder of The Family, a company who educate, protect and finance entrepreneurs. Usama, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on with us today. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's um, an absolute pleasure having you. Now, this podcast, Usama, first and foremost, is about leadership and effective leadership specifically. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Um, I think for me, leadership always has been about learning to follow. I think if you want to be a great leader, you just you need to learn to be a good follower first. And we are living in a world that is more and more flat. So the leadership is more and more about having people willing, having people willingly following you than giving orders. Absolutely, because being a leader um, is about um, learning as well, isn't it? Um, you're not going to become a leader and be ready-made for a leadership role. You still have things to learn. And that's something that will continue to develop throughout your career, isn't it, even in a leadership position? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always been an entrepreneur, so I I, I enjoyed the, the fact of being a bad leader by force. <laughs> um, and and when you are an entrepreneur, you you at the beginning you think that you are the boss because someone gives you the title of the boss. But then you realize that you need to earn your place like anyone, and you have to work hard and achieve actual things and actual win, so people trust you all the time. I think you're absolutely right in saying that um, being a leader is very much about um, the collective. It's about the people around you just as much as it's about you as an individual, isn't it? And it's really important to remember that. Yes. And, and, and you know, there is this uh, old thing that say if you want, if you want to, uh, to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. So if you want to achieve anything significant, uh, you need um, other people with you. Mm. And you say yourself that um, you've um, always been um, an entrepreneur, Usama. Um, did you imagine from quite an early age then that you would end up in a leadership position and essentially being the boss yourself one day? Yeah, so, so I have a very strange background because I I kind of created my first company by mistake when I was 13 years old. And, and so that was the internet beginning and I did a website and people gave me money for this website. And then I started to do websites for others with my friends online. So I had to manage people at 15 years old all around the world for internet. So, um, I have this path of life where I have been forced to get people doing things with me very early on online. And then I created more regular startups with offices and things like that. So I never, I never had a job or or curriculum or anything. I always worked for myself and I always developed my company. Mm. And would you say starting out um, in that sense from such an early age meant that you learned um, a whole lot during that time as well? Yeah, yeah. Recently I realized that this year at uh, 34 years old, uh, it's my 20 years of professional experience. So <laughs> that's, a weird, uh, that's a weird perspective. Um, and, and of course you learn so much by doing. So when you do a lot, 
uh, you can have a, a much higher understanding. And, and I see that when I compare to people that have been managing more traditional companies, where the extreme case we are facing is less obvious. And the fact of facing extreme case as an entrepreneur makes you quite resilient uh, to what happens, especially in time like COVID-19. Mm. And um, considering that you started out so young as well, um, are there any specific um, examples of leaders who have been an inspiration to you? Because, um, of course, you haven't had the experience of working for somebody before. And some people might be inspired yeah. by previous bosses, for example. Yeah, so, so the funny thing is that because of being a child of internet, I I got a lot of internet inspiration. And I work in the startup industry where in startup industry, most of the leaders share their thoughts online quite openly. I mean, mm. I, I started to read Mark Anderson's blog uh, 15 years ago. So, so all these people published a lot and lot of content through the years that have been a real inspiration for me. Absolutely. The internet um, has um, really made um, such information very easily accessible for the next generation of entrepreneurs, but also with the um, the development and advent of social media as well. I think for younger people especially, there are a lot of pressures that come with that. And also, I think some young entrepreneurs have a fear of trying things just because they are afraid of failing and perhaps afraid of being criticised. Um, do you think that we should be telling younger entrepreneurs to embrace failure and be willing to learn from their mistakes yeah yeah sure I mean the problem with failure is that it, it's a for good reason that failure feel bad if failure was not feeling bad then we will never succeed I mean I hated every failure I, I had in my life and so when we say we celebrate failure we should say we celebrate taking risk taking risk is good uh, failing is bad but it's fine because if you take risk enough, there is always a moment where you get something out of it. And so you can discount on the long term the failure. And I think that's the secret of being long term driven. If you are short term driven, failure is horrible. But if you are long term driven, every failure looks so small over a certain period of time. I think, and I can see exactly where you're coming from there, um, Usama. And um, would you say that it's actually possible to become a good leader without taking risks and uh, without making mistakes and learning from them? No, no, no. I don't think so. That, by the way, that's what we are. That's what we are seeing in our world of of the really failed leadership. It's people that did not leave enough. I mean, um, living hard and living intensively is the best way of becoming a good leader. And and we we live in a world with more and more extremes where we require leadership that is based on reality and not based on what people learn in school. I think that's a really, really interesting. And um, if you were to give um, your own advice to uh, the next generation of emerging leaders, emerging entrepreneurs, um, what do you think are the key things that we should be telling them? To do things, even small things. I think because everyone... Uh, things that they can build the next Facebook, everybody tried to build the next Facebook. But they forget that even Mark Zuckerberg never intend to build the next Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg at the beginning just wanted to build a social network for school and it happened that working so well in his school, he tried for every school. And then when he worked very well for every school, he told himself, maybe I can become a ruler of this world. But, but this is a process. And I think 
young people need to understand that ambition comes from the fact that you actually achieve things and you try to do it as fast as possible. But doing things is much more important than thinking about doing things. I think that's absolutely right. And um, it's really important to make sure that we don't lose sight um, of that long-term ambition, um, isn't it? Um, it is quite difficult um, at the moment, of course, with everything going on with COVID-19 to focus on the um, the long term because there is a great deal of uncertainty, however. And um, it has really tested the ability of businesses and business leaders to make quick decisions in a sensible way um, and be reactive as well, hasn't it? That's been a real, real test so far, um, at the moment. Yeah. And, yeah, this crisis has been, uh, this crisis is very specific in the sense that it's an offer and demand crisis, and that's insane. And I think um, leadership right now is about being able to react super, super quickly. Absolutely. And um, how have you personally um, responded to the um, this crisis so far? Because it is, we often hear it said that it is unprecedented. No one's seen anything like this before. Um, have you ever had to take decisions like this in your career before now? No, never. It's the first. It's, it's insane. I lived the 2008 crisis. It was really uh, a peaceful world compared to this crisis. Um I think this crisis is going to be much bigger than 2008, for sure. I don't know the one previously, but, but for sure, bigger than 2008. Um, on a personal level, my business is very heated by that because we are doing everything through events, and all our events have been cancelled until next January. Um, we are seeing um, a reduction of our revenue of 95% on the year. So I had to really be super quick in how to manage a team transition, let go a lot of people in our team, helping find other opportunities and and really build something that that, that works. Exactly. It's a huge challenge um, for business and um, businesses rising to the challenge as well, because we often see that um, crisis times like this do often bring out the best in individuals, don't they? And people are really, really pushing themselves and pushing the boundaries at this time to stay innovative. Yeah. Survival mode is one of the most powerful creative modes. I think um, that's really, really thought-provoking and uh, business leaders should really take that on board as well. Um, if we do look to the future now, uh, Musama, and look at the uh, the next 12 months, um, what do you imagine that period of time will hold for yourself and for the family? And what do you hope to achieve in that period as well, especially coming out of this outbreak and out of the other side? Yeah. So, so the decision we took was to be very, very pessimist about COVID and to build a business that is resistant to COVID, even if COVID is not that long. And so we are switching 100% of our business online and we are not going to get it back. So everything that we were doing offline now, we want to do it online first and we want that offline is an optionality. We want that this moment of history become a real opportunity for us to achieve a global um, uh, deployment of our company. We help startups start and there is no reason we don't help people in Thailand, Japan, uh, everywhere. I think entrepreneurship is going to become a super, super strategic thing in the years to come and we are really well positioned uh, to go and, and, and build that. So, so I, I really hope that this time of COVID will be the opportunity to us 
to achieve a transformation that would have been totally unimaginable before COVID. And how mm. and if COVID goes for three months, six months, one year, whatever, we we are going to discount that as a hypothesis because we are not going to to count on the fact that the world is going to be open one day, even if of course I hope it's going to reopen one day. Yes, um, I'm sure we all uh, hope that um, we do start seeing uh, restrictions lifted and um, business returning to uh, normal. But there is going to be a new normal as well, isn't there? I mean, it's not going to be the same. It's going to change the way that we do business, especially with everybody working remotely from home. Um, It's going to be very, very different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Of course, there are things that will not change. I I think what's really hard with this kind of time is that everything we think will change and are obviously changing are maybe not the thing that will change. And things that are really, really weird will change with with surprise. I think that's why it's so hard to predict the future, is that the reality of the future is always more surprising. That's what any screenwriter in Hollywood can write. Reality is, is really the best screenwriter out there. I think um, it would be fantastic, actually, Usama, um, to um, perhaps in the next few months when we start seeing how some of these changes do come about, um, to perhaps have you back on the programme to look at what we've said today retrospectively and really um, analyse that. Um, But for now, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure and also very, very insightful and interesting having you on today. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on for the benefit of the listeners. Absolutely. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, Yeah, me too. Thank you. No problem whatsoever. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Uh, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricketer Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... 
see your name being put up on the Lord's honour board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, uh, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of 
living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the ashes but also the day after you know that open top bus parade around london and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. for, for Absolutely, Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and 
the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem and you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all of that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky 
having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in, your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of, you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December, uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families 
prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh in a good way you know we felt so much uh love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing re uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period 
broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.